welcome to the Kate and Vince Kelsa podcast. This is episode 20. 20? We've been talking about your years at WNEW. So I thought I would start by reading just the section about this night that we want to talk about from uh, Richard Neer's book, FM, The Rise and Fall of Rock Radio. Oh, yeah, that's right. Richard Neer wrote that Which book. Mm. It's pretty good. Okay, so it starts out the chapter called Across the Universe with um, talking about uh, Marty Martinez, who I know is Uncle Marty. <laughs> uh, Marty Martinez was dressed in his punk finest, festooned with a bright yellow skinny tie with the XTC logo on it. He was finally feeling that he had been accepted as an equal by his peers, not just the token minority hire. He was going to the Christmas concert. Marty had been hired two years before as a desk assistant amid the typical confusion that reigned whenever Scott Muni conducted a job interview. <laughs> a friend of his had been contacted by WNEWAM's veteran news director, Jim Gordon, who was looking for some night help on the news desk. Blessed with a roguish personality that everyone at the station loved, he was quickly made part of the Butch and the Brick show with Skelsa and Marrera. Marty liked to say that he was invited to every party to make sure there was a party, if you catch my meaning. <laughs> I always assumed that his bark was worse than his bite when it came to his stories of late-night drug-induced revelry at the station, but I was later to discover that the wild accounts were understated. But on this winter's night toward the end of 1980, Marty had broken through from being an outlaw on the outskirts of the station who technically serviced the newsroom, to a full-fledged staff member. Muni had personally invited him to the party that night. It was WNEW's annual Christmas concert, and the party afterward would be held backstage at the prestigious Avery Fisher Hall in Lincoln Center. When Muni had seen Martinez at the hallway the previous week, he casually asked, Going to the party Monday, fats? <laughs> That good, a good impersonation. Yeah, it's gotta be deep. Gotta, gotta be deeper. Gotta gotta be deeper. The party Monday, fat. Yep, fat. <laughs> on being told that he was on duty that night, Muni replied, "I think we can arrange for you to take off a few hours. Party doesn't start till eleven or so. Stop by then." He handed him an invitation. It was the first time that the young desk assistant felt that he actually belonged. The Christmas shows were part of a rich tradition at the station, starting in 1971. When for $16,000, the band Genesis was imported to do their first U.S. concert. There was a grand party at Tavern on the Green afterward, and every year since, WNEW hosted a major concert at venues like Madison Square Garden, the Beacon Theater, the Westchester Premier Theater, blah, blah, blah. Uh, net proceeds went to United Cerebral Palsy, and Scott would dress up like Santa Claus and bring out a couple of the UCP kids to sing carols between acts. Before the concert, the staff would gather around a large tree in the lobby and accept gifts for needy children. Unlike most radio stations that use such events to enrich their coffers, WNEW made sure that the net proceeds from all of its non-radio activities went entirely to charity, including the revenues from the softball games that reached out to communities each summer. Martinez was working at the station until a concert with the Marshall Tucker Band ended and then planned to go to the party. He probably could have skipped work entirely, but he didn't want to desert Vin Skelsa, who often needed hand-holding to help him make it through the night. Oh, come on! Mm -hmm. Hand-holding? Is that in a published uh, book? Yeah. Well, it's Richard yeah. Neer's book, you know? 
I just, I just oh, wow. had to, I had to go shut the window. That's what it was. It was somebody's mowing a lawn somewhere. That was the noise I was hearing. You don't think Richard Neer is giving an objective I, opinion I, of this? Yeah, it's fairly objective. <laughs> Richard, well, see, Richard and I had some moments, um, yeah. you know, together. So Richard was another, another DJ on the station. The yeah, time. and, uh, you know, we, we liked each other. We respected each other, but we had some moments. And Richard, um, well, that was his opinion of me. That was his view of me, was that I was a little... Uh, a little uh, weird. Yeah, the, wait, the description continues on. I want you to hear this part. Okay. Depending on his moods, Gelso would come in, sequester himself in the studio, do a four-hour show, and resent any intrusions. Or he might arrive full of piss and vinegar and invite Marty into his inner sanctum to rail against the station's oppressive management. Martinez's upbeat personality would often soothe the undirected anger residing in Celsa <laughs> and convince him that he still had one of the best jobs in the world. Mm -hmm. But Vin was becoming increasingly bitter about the music business, which he saw as a bunch of corporate exploiters bent on making a profit over the broken backs of poor artists. He hated most record promoters, rejected their company, and despised the ornate parties that they threw. He easily could have taken the night off and attended the show, but preferred being on the air to celebrating with a bunch of hacks whom he felt were destroying the music that he loved. <laughs> <laughs> this attitude made it <laughs> this attitude made it increasingly hard to work at a station that was feeling the economic pressure from Metro Media. But other than non-commercial radio, there was nowhere else where Skilsa could still play whatever he wanted with only occasional brushes with management. Marty was sorry that his friend couldn't share his excitement about going to the party. Aww, oh, poor Marty. Marty finally got invited to the Christmas party. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, ah, humbug. <laughs> <laughs> Warner Brothers, which was footing the bill for the festivities, boasted many of his favorite artists. Mm -hmm. So he didn't feel he was betraying any of Vince's principles by attending. As he spiffed up at his desk, he heard the distinctive warning bells of the police scanner proclaim a bulletin coming. He pulled the story off the wire and shrugged it off, making only a mental note that the incident reported was near Avery Fisher Hall and that he might have to tell his cabbie to use Broadway instead of Central Park West. A man had been shot on West 72nd Street near the park. Shootings were not an uncommon occurrence on the night shift in the city, so Martinez merely left the page for the AM news anchor. There were no details other than that several shots were fired. That's so interesting that the first bulletin that came across didn't identify anything yeah. or anybody. That it just said, the, you know, shots fired and a man had been injured. Wow, I didn't realize yeah. that, that that was the very first bulletin. Because there was this, there's a succession of bulletins that came across that, that, that thing that newsrooms had that alerted them to police activity. Right. Okay. Well, and I was just reading some online. It's a, we're about to say about how Howard Cosell made this announcement. And this, cr I was just reading as I was Googling about it that evidently this crazy thing happened where there was a reporter who was in the hospital for a motorcycle accident mm. when they brought John Lennon in. Yeah. And he managed to get a call in to the network to say John Lennon 
has been shot. Like it, like the information would not have gotten out even as quickly as it did. Interesting. But it was this guy was in the hospital for his for an accident. I've seen that in a in a film with, and I thought it was fictional. It's. It, this was an it, this was an article that you were also quoted in. Yeah. I think it was like Daily News or something. Okay, so it must have I been mean, an anniversary. Yeah, and this yeah. this guy said that, and there were other people who corroborated it who said, "Yeah, he called it in." Yeah, yeah, I remember that. It, the way it was depicted in this film was that the guy was literally laying on a a, a gurney in a hallway yep. of the hospital, and all of a sudden. You know, this other gurney goes by, and he recognizes Lennon. Yeah, you know, I think that really happened. Yeah, it oh seems my like god. Yeah. Wow. So he calls in the middle of he calls the whatever network he worked for in the middle of Monday Night Football. So here, I'll read this next part. Monday Night Football was softly providing the background din, but since no one on the premises was a sports fan, they paid it little mind. But it's, as he was on his way to the studio to say goodnight to Vin, Marty heard Howard Cassell say something about John Lennon being shot. The AP and police scanner alarms went off almost simultaneously, confirming that the former Beatle had been the victim. Skelsa came bursting into the newsroom. A listener had called after hearing Cassell make the announcement at the football game. He had just put Springsteen's Jungle Land on the turntable, and he agonized over what to do. I can't tell people that John Lennon is dead. I just can't do it. Both men went back to the studio, unsure of how to treat the situation on the air. Is that how you remember? Do you remember someone calling? Uh, yes. Yeah, I remember someone calling, although my, my recollection is that the first that I heard of it was Marty coming into the studio and saying, uh-huh. Lennon has been shot. He's been taken to the hospital, not that he was dead, because the first reports were not that he had died. That wasn't right. until later at the hospital. Right, um, right. But I do remember, the what I remember was the phones at the station lit up. Suddenly, right. like, you know, there were 10 lines, and, and they're all, you know, they're all uh, indicated by lights, right? All the lights started flashing. Very unusual. The only time that would happen would be if you were having a contest. You know, to give right. a, to give away tickets to something or whatever. So I picked up. And it up, was like eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, late. yeah. I picked up one of the lines, and it was somebody crying, saying, "John Lennon's been shot." Cosell just said, and I, and I said, "Yeah, I know, but we don't know what we don't know what the story." You know, blah 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 blah. blah. That's the way I remember it. Was right. that Marty told me first, and right. then I picked up the 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 phone. Wow. Okay. Yeah, this so is. So then it says, uh, as Jungle Land reached a quiet passage, Marty finally said, "Either you tell them, or I'll have to tell them." Then, Skelsa faded down the record, and for the first time in his career, was at a loss for words. Mm. As Martinez stood behind him, he reported that Lennon had been shot, and the details were sketchy. Yeah, both see? of them found. Yeah, both of them found tears welling up in their eyes as their throats grew thick with emotion. Martinez went back to the wire room where the grisly story was being confirmed. Not only had Lennon been shot, but he had died on the way to the hospital, mm. which is funny because I don't that what I was reading said he died at the hospital, that they did actually try to. Yeah, I thought uh, my, I think that's wrong. My recollection is that he that he was still alive when he got to the hospital, but yeah, that they I couldn't. Yeah, they couldn't do anything. 
Um, Marty brought the news to Skelsa, and the disoriented disc jockey called Muni at Avery Fisher Hall for counsel. Now, that was a trip. Because I, I, I'm all alone at 11 o'clock at night at this, right. you know, top radio station in, in New York. And I know that people are, are tuning in. I know that as right. the word gets out on, you know, via television and phone calls and everybody, you know, the, the, the grapevine was exploding. And it was all going to rest on me. So I said, I got to talk to Scott, but how do I find, I don't I have no idea. Because now the concert was over and it was party time. Right. So I, I call, I get a number for no Avery. No cell phones? There's no, no cell phones at this point, 1980. Um, I, I get a number for Avery Fisher Hall and I try to speak calmly to the person who answered and I said there's been been uh, an important uh, uh, you know event a news event and I must get backstage to the backstage party and speak to Scott Muni and I must have gone through like four different people four yeah. different phones four different rooms before I finally got to the to the party and yeah. I and and Scott of course was was friendly with John um, right. They had had um, children. Scott had, um, I think it was a daughter that was born, uh, right around the same time that that yeah, Julian. They, both, they were waiting for Sean. No, Sean. Sean Lennon. Uh, not not. Yeah. Yeah. They were waiting for their kids. Their wives went into labor at the same time. Yeah. In the same yeah. Hospital. Yeah. The same hospital. So Yoko Ono and and Scott's wife were like uh, practically roommates. They were next door to each other. <laughs> And the hospital, but aside from that, Scott and John had had a relationship that went all the way back to the Beatles, all the way back to when the Beatles first came to America in 1964. Right. Scott was one of the many AM DJs who became the fifth Beatle. You know, it was like uh, any mm-hmm. any Beatle, any DJ worth his salt. Um, would say that that's who he was. He was the fifth Beatle. He was the guy the Beatles trusted. You know, was uh, right. uh, you know you can name any famous DJ not only in New York but all over the country because that's what they did. They traveled all over the country at that point. But Scott had developed a relationship with John, and uh, it was it was above and beyond just a business thing. You know, so for me to have to give this this news to Scott was very difficult to do and uh you know there was just there was just silence on the phone you were the first you were the first one to tell him he found out from you that's my recollection of it but now that seems that seems a little um that seems a little fantastical that's my recollection. My recollection is that I told him, yeah. But there were yeah. enough people there. But it was before cell phones. You're right. So yeah, I don't know. Well, he says here. Wait, I'll read this little paragraph. Okay. Now here's here's Richard talking about being at the party. The show had just ended, and Scott and I were just walking back into the room for the post-concert celebration when Vin's call came through. The news went through the small gathering like a wind blow wind-blown shroud of fog spreading from one group to the next. I've never seen a room empty so quickly. Mm. Robin Sagan and Andy Fisher, our FM news people at that time, 
were dispatched to gather details and confirm the story through other sources. Everyone quickly filed out at a loss for what to do, say, or where to go. There would be no party, and the tables laden with gourmet delights went untouched. The food would later be distributed to the homeless. Mm. So you remember, so you, I mean, you probably told him. I probably was the one who brought that news to that room, yeah. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm thinking today, immediately everybody's cell phone, you know, would light up. Um, yeah. But we didn't have them then. So news moved more slowly then. Uh, Do you remember what Scott said to you? Maybe yeah, I remember that time. after after a, a long pause of silence, his voice came back a little shaky, but with the authority that he had as a, as a former Marine, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. sure. um, uh, and as the, the, the boss, the program director. I mean, he was like, uh, all right, kid, uh, you know, play the music. Uh, I said, what should I do about commercials? Ah, no, no commercials. Can't can the commercials. I mm-hmm. said, yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what we should do. He said, all right, I'll get over there. And I'll round up everybody, and we'll uh, we'll all we'll all come over, and we'll we'll uh, we'll we'll sit with you, okay? Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, okay, but Jesus, Scott, I just John, you know, <laughs> it's like you know, John Lennon. Of all the Beatles, John was the New York Beatle, you know, because he because he he lived in New York, and he had a. Uh, a certain attitude, a certain vibe that spoke to New Yorkers. And for people my age, Lenin was our touchstone to growing up. You know, yeah. we sort of we sort of grew up, we sort of came of age with the Beatles. We started with them in 64, you know, after after our young president was killed, uh, JFK, and we we kind of um, came back from the pain and the sorrow of that through the joy and the exuberance of these four guys, the Beatles. Right. And, and we're all still, you know, teenagers. We're all still 13, 14 years old. And... Over the course of the next few years, we grow up as they grow up, as they become, um, as they fulfill their artistic calling. And there was just something so damn special about it. And I think every generation has somebody in the pop light that that speaks to them in the same way. I think um, certainly uh, Prince spoke to certain people in, in that way. Michael Jackson, uh, you know, a bigger pop star, um, but his death was so meaningful to people. And to go back a few years, Kurt Cobain, that death was meaningful to a, a, a good portion of the rock audience at the time. So to be present and to be part of communicating the news to the larger world that this this icon who is also our friend 
has been brutally murdered. I mean, not just that he's that he's died, but that he's been, you know, senselessly, cruelly, stupidly murdered on the street in front of his apartment with his wife standing there. You know, that's hard to do. That's hard to 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 um to get a grip on. And you and at a certain point I think what we all did that night was we put ourselves onto a, a kind of an automatic pilot. And that's what Scott did. Yeah. You know, right from the right from the get-go when he said, "All right, no commercials." Play, uh, play Beatles, play Lennon, play the play, play uh, appropriate music. Vinny, you know how to do that. You know what to do, and we'll yeah. be there as soon as we we get there. And I said, you know, Scott, the phones are lighting up. People want to talk about this. He said, God, put them on the air. And gradually, as Scott and the other DJs who were at this event found their way back to the station which was located in um, Midtown, like 40, 46th and... Oh, no, this was a different station now. I mean, the same station, but a different location. At that point, we were on 2nd Avenue and 42nd Street. We were right around the corner from uh, the Daily News building. That's where the studio was then in 1980. So... It took everybody a while to get back from Lincoln Center. I guess most everybody just got in cabs and came back. And between that point when they said they were going to leave and by the time they got there, I was putting calls on the air, um, just letting people vent, letting people say what they wanted to say. And, and the phone calls went from ran the gamut, you know, from disbelief to sorrow to, you know, people, men and women, girls and boys crying, um, to to anger and God damn it, who is this goddamn person who killed our John? You know, that, that that kind of incoherent anger when you're faced with something as shocking and as sad as this. So that's what we did then when they finally got, all got back to the station. You know, yeah, we all hugged and, and kissed and, and uh, um, gave each other personal solace. But on the air, we tried to be professional and we tried to give our listeners what they expected from us, which was to be sort of the... Um, the power, the power that holds the group together. Right. Oh, there's a siren. Yeah, you have you have fire engines, and I have like lawn people. They yeah. finally decided that it's spring. Wow, that's loud. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> must, <laughs> must be terrible. To... <laughs> well, um, do you want to listen to the audio? We have the audio. Yeah, you know, for years, for years, I could not listen to it. Yeah, I can imagine. I, I, somewhere buried in our house here is the original copy of the recording that was made that night. Um, Yeah. And then 
I don't know. There's kind, you know, it just got out there. I guess people immediately started recording. People put their their cassettes in, yeah. you know, and and because that's what they did back then. Uh, but I didn't want to hear it for for the longest time, and I finally found out it was in the what was called the Museum of of Television and Radio. It, it has a different name now. It's named the So-and-So Foundation or something, but it's still the Museum of Television and Radio. And uh, we went there. Mom and I went there once. Years. I think I, I was... We, I listened to it there. Yeah? Were you with yeah. us then, that, yeah. that time? I guess we all went. Unless you went more than once. Mm. That's where I first heard it. No, I only went once. So then I was there too. Yeah, and I and then I remember, on a, on an anniversary on a, what was I guess the twentieth, the twentieth anniversary, December, two thousand. Pete Fornatel and I now found ourselves both at WFUV. No, wait, two thousand. 2001, not 2000, 2001. So it was the 21st anniversary. It was like just weeks after 9-11. Right. Which we were still kind of, you know, shaky with. And Pete, as was his want, was such a, a historian about this that he felt that um, he wanted to uh, make an impression about this other tragic event that happened um he kind of drew a comparison to the way we all responded to 9-11 to the way we responded to lenin's death and he played the tapes he had me in the room with him because he was on before me on uh uh on on fuv and i said oh peter you're gonna play the the actual think the me saying it and he said yeah and I said oh, I don't know if I want to hear this especially with how we all feel right now but I listened to it and it's always hard <laughs> it's yeah. it's always hard it's hard to I think it's hard for anyone to listen to yeah. it's very it's very emotional yeah and it's the for for many New Yorkers it's um it's their touchstone i mean for people all around the country the touchstone is is cosell um right but for people in new york it was it was new and it was uh, it was yours truly so this is you december 8th 1980 probably what time do you think it was a little after 11 at this point yeah a little after 11 all right. This is WNEWFM in New York. I have the extremely sad task of informing you that John Lennon died tonight. He was um, shot and uh, fatally wounded in front of his um, home at the Dakota. This report has now been confirmed by uh, all of the other wire services, and this is a New York City police report. for words. I think for the first time in my career on the radio, I don't have anything to say.
When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. This is WNWFM in New York. And let it all be a very sad news tonight of the uh, the murder of John Lennon. Um, at 11 o'clock, he was shot in front of the Dakota as he and uh, Yoko Ono were leaving their apartment, their place of residence. Um, was taken to Roosevelt Hospital. We have. Tons of information, all of it sketchy and different, and um, the the one thing that remains the same in all of these reports is the very sad and uh, very shocking conclusion of these reports that John Lennon is dead. Jack Douglas, um, Lennon's producer, said the singer and his wife had been at a studio um, at the record plant earlier tonight and that Lennon left at 10.30. Said Lennon was going to get a bite to eat and go home. A gentleman who was identified as a pedestrian said at the hospital that he was walking south near 72nd Street when he heard four shots. Said he came around the corner to Central Park West and he saw John Lennon being put into the back of a police car. He was taken to uh, Roosevelt Hospital. Uh, a man has been uh, um, taken into custody Evidently, uh, this person who was taken into custody had been uh, described by uh, some as uh, crouching in the archway of the Dakota as if he were waiting for Lennon to come. This person has been described as a pudgy kind of man by eyewitnesses, 35 to 40 years old, with brown hair. He was immediately put into another police car, taken into custody. An eyewitness said, quote, he had a smirk on his face. End quote. And uh, as I said, there's there's so much more information. Evidently, um, now they're saying that um, he was pronounced dead shortly after arrival at Roosevelt Hospital. One of the earlier reports talked about the medical staff at Roosevelt working um, with great diligence and 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 hurry in an attempt to. Um, save his life. He was shot in the chest uh, at least three times. John Lennon, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, it's not just another, I, I, I don't know how to say this without it sounding, you know, mundane or, or, or um, um, was he was not just another person in the public eye, you know, he was not just another star, he was not just another rock star or movie star or, or politician or whoever, John Lennon, the, the, the enormous amount of grief that is being um, expressed tonight by people, certainly picking up the telephone listening to phone calls here at the station is, is incredible, a man was somebody that, who touched uh, uh, the hearts and minds of us all as a Beatle, still as a Beatle. And as as John Lennon, as he as he fought so hard to gain his identity as John Lennon, and uh, 
it's almost as if uh, I, I'm just flashing back to the to the day that uh, that, uh, that John Kennedy was shot and killed, and I and I feel a similar loss and a similar grief. You know, it's it's something that again goes above and beyond the the, the public figure to somebody who we all dearly loved and and who gave us so much. You know. And we gave it back to him too, you know. We loved him too. We loved him, and we uh, we let him know in a thousand different ways. And and particularly here in New York, he was one of us. He has been a New Yorker for so many years now. And and you'd you'd, you'd see him walking down the streets and stuff, you know. And you'd wave and say hi, John. And I've heard so many stories of from cab drivers who who, who picked him up and who refused to let him pay, you know, just because they said, hey, thank you for all the, for all that music. Thank you for all those years. And what a, a sad and terrible thing that he has to uh, meet his end in this violent, damnable fashion. So if we, um, if you believe in prayer, say a prayer for John Lennon and say a prayer for Yoko Ono and say a prayer for the rest of us. Are you there? Yep. Hmm. <laughs> I got all choked up again. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty emotional. Yeah. Um, I guess we should explain that that's you know, something that we found online. It's uh, It's got to be like dozens and dozens of generations removed from the original the original recordings um you know don't think that that radio sounded like that back <laughs> in 1980 just because it was such a long time ago it's <laughs> you know it sounded normal like you know like it sounds today but yeah. that was just um god wow so i think that was all while i was still alone yeah. That was all before um, before everybody else came back. And then everyone from the party came to the station, pretty much. Well, everyone. All the DJs. Well, all the DJs and uh, news people. And, uh, and then through the course of the night, other people came by there were people who were just out wandering the streets i mean paul simon's song about that night has him walking the streets and walking into a a, a bar you know and there was a guy um Trying to think of his name now. He was a newsman on on NBC. I want to say his name was Tony Gaida, but I'm not a hundred percent sure now. And he had been working because a lot of people just went in. That was the thing. See, a lot of people in the media, in radio and TV and news, just sort of went to their specific places, their homes, so to speak to see if they could be of use somehow. 
So this reporter, and, and there were a couple of other reporters too, but he's the guy I remember the most because he was a, you know, one of those big, handsome TV guys. And he was just devastated, you know. He just couldn't stop crying. And he came to the station because this is where he wanted to be. He, he, you know, he had to be with his friends in a, in a, in, in a situation that was going to give him some comfort as well as make him feel that somehow he was doing something, you know. Right. Uh, about community and a, a kind of collective mourning. I mean, yeah. I don't want to be alone. Yeah. There's How that. Do you, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. There's that that filmmaker who died a couple of years ago. Um, Joe Berlinger's partner, Bruce Sanofsky. Mm-hmm. Oh, you were yeah. there. You were there that I was there. that night. That Sanofsky was very, very moved, and changed his life the night that John Lennon died. Made some decisions about what he was going to do with his life, and. Years later now, he had become a filmmaker um, known for the the Paradise Lost films, series of films about those three kids down in one of the southern states who were accused of murder and right. uh, and a bunch of other, you know, films as well that he made with, um, with uh, his partner. And it was sometime in the... 2000s early 2000s that he yeah, got maybe he, 2003 or four yeah he wanted to make a movie about that night and and wanted the movie a fictional movie to be centered around the radio station and so he contacted me and and I got together a variety of people um, and we had this dinner at this little Italian place in the city uptown and you were there I, re- I re- recall that well now. I wonder if this wasn't a dinner. Maybe you had a dinner with him separately. But when I came, the thing I came to was in some kind of like conference room. And yeah. all the DJs, everyone who was still around, came and you had like a round table yeah. reminiscing about that night. And I made him film it. Uh, and, and somewhere there's a film... Yeah, you know this movie will never get made because he's gone, unfortunately. And also, remember Gandolfini was going to play you. <laughs> That's that was and the she... the word that was Jim Gandolfini's um, production company that was interested in the film, uh, in, well, in his, perhaps making the film. Yeah, his assistant was there that night, which I remember because we had a CD of. Of I guess this recording, yeah, and maybe some other stuff from that night, and no one had a CD player, and the assistant and I went down the street to the CVS to buy a CD player. No kidding. And he was like, "Oh, here, put it on the boss's card." Uh-huh. And James, so James, and then I just <laughs> kept it. James Gandolfini bought me. I only recently got rid of it. It was a clock. Alarm clock CD player. No James kidding. James bought me. Wow. Yeah, and um, so we brought that back, and there were a good. No, I feel like there were maybe ten of you there. Oh yeah, this was, but it, this was at that restaurant. It was in a. Are you sure? It yeah. Was in a back room. Maybe? It was in a back room. It was a long table. We all okay. sat around the table. Um, 
I recall that we had dinner. Maybe we didn't. Maybe we That's just had funny. wine or something. But I'm, I'm pretty sure we ate, and then we talked, and we each gave our recollections of that night. And it was all he had the screenwriter there who was the gonna... screenwriter was the was the man who wrote the script the screenplay for Boys Don't Cry for Boys Don't Cry yeah you're right right it was gonna be a great movie I yeah I was I was freaking out because I just thought okay well this is your DVD extras it yeah. has to be all of these legendary people who were actually there that night. I mean, I want, you know, that footage is somewhere. I wonder I where. Yeah. Um, yeah, the DVD extra. It's funny we think about that. I know. That doesn't even exist They, they don't exist anymore. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, he wanted to center the entire film around the radio station, around the studio, around the, 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 the broadcast, and then go out to individual places in the tri-state area where his characters, his fictional characters, would be listening to the radio. He, right. want, he wanted to show how the radio was the, the focal point for everyone, was the, was the tit that everyone went to to suck on to get the information, if you will. Um, Very vivid. And, and get the comfort, you know, from that. Yeah, Bruce Sinofsky, he was a sweet, sweet man. It's a shame that he, he died so soon, so early. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long did this go on for, do you think? That night? Yeah. Um, I guess everybody started to leave and, and go home um, maybe around 5, 5.30. Um, yeah. Dave Herman was the, the morning person at that point so he was um he had just spent the whole night and he was going to take over in the morning so i don't know when he finally got to sleep he finally didn't get to sleep until like you know probably 11 or 12 o'clock that afternoon the next day um but yeah we were there all night and it was tom herrera and i because it was what we normally did was the butch and the brick you know, I was on from 10 to 2. He was on from 2 to 6, normally. And there would be a crossover where we'd hang out together. And depending upon... Um, there was a time, Kate, believe it or not, when I actually had energy. Yeah. <laughs> I would stay with him until sometimes 4 o'clock, oh, 4, 35. You energy at 3 in the morning. Yeah. Energy. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's... Not in the daytime. And they um, they kept it up for a full, I guess, two days at the station, just playing, you know, Beatles and playing the solo stuff and the group stuff. And um, finally, I, I remember listening to, to Dave uh, two days later and Dave finally saying, we, you know, we're all suffering, we're all sad. Uh, there's going to be these special events this weekend, uh, blah, blah, blah. But we have to get on with our lives. We have to move forward now. So we're going to end our week here and, yeah. uh, uh, you know, get back to what passes for normal at this radio station. Were you on every night? Do you remember? 
that point? Um, at that point, yeah, I was on, I guess, four nights a week. Um, and then I was still doing the Sunday show. So, yeah, I was the full-time guy. I took over when Allison Steele left the station. She was she was let go. She was fired. Um, hard to believe that now, but it's true. Um, they weren't, they'd feel like she was a good fit anymore? Yeah, yeah. They felt like she was a little too much connected to the kind of, you know, hippie thing and... She was, yeah, she wasn't growing the way the other people were growing. And and she could be a pain in the neck, too, I guess. And she cost them a lot of money. And they could have me <laughs> for a, a lot cheaper than they had Allison, I guess. Because um, mm -hmm. she was a superstar. Yeah, yeah. And I remember um, Scott you know, sort of wooing me and trying to talk me into it because I already had a wonderful gig there. You know, I worked a good four and sometimes five days a week, uh, various different schedules, different shows. I mentioned that, I think, last time, how I was on all these different mm -hmm. time slots. And I wasn't sure that if I wanted to actually be the person responsible for the 10 to 2 slot, because in those days, that was still an important time slot on the radio. And that's 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I had been Allison until then. That was Allison, yeah. So do you think you went back on the air during when this two-day wake was happening? Or oh, yeah. You had off, you went back on. Yeah, I went, um, I went back every night. Um, you were born, you were, you were just a baby. You were born that July yep. and this happened in December. So you were six months old and I was still getting used to that part of my life, being a, a, a father to a, an infant. Um, and you know, it's funny. I remember now distinctly, I remember my parents parents coming to visit for Christmas but th but that it was sort of like a week after so it wasn't quite Christmas yet but it was it was maybe a week after Lenin's death and my mother saying how she understood she was finally understanding what it was that my generation was feeling about um, about life and about the world through witnessing the grief that was shown on TV newscasts and, you know, reading the newspapers and all that. Um, she finally, like, calmed down a little bit about the generation conflict in the, huh. in the Skelsa family. And also, and also her, her mother, Grandma Berlin, was still alive. And she came that night, and she was holding you and, and just so enjoying having you in her life. And it was, um, it was one of those moments when, you know, you sort of see the, the continuity of things, when yeah. you're, you're living through terrible pain, but you're also 
experiencing wonderful joy and familial love. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of emotions that come into um, come into my memory when I consider that particular event in those days. Do you think it was that Grandma finally just had sympathy, that it was just sort of seeing your generation as human and as experiencing loss? Yeah. That's what it was? That's, that's what she said. That's how she explained it. It was, um, yeah, it was empathy. Yeah. And I guess it brought her back to uh, some point in her memory of her youth, you know. Yeah, I mean, my parents and I, we've talked about this on the, on the podcast. We had a terrible time for a couple of years with what was known as the generation conflict. And... Uh, they never quite got it. But when John Lennon died, they got it. You were 33, is that right? I think that's right. Yeah, I guess, right. Um, 77, I was 30, so... 8, yeah. 9, 10, yeah, 33. Yeah, it was right. It was just before my 33rd birthday. Right. Which would would have been on... My birthday's on the 12th of December, and, and uh, John died on the 8th of December. Now, I want to ask you something which maybe, I mean, you actually don't even really need to answer it, but <laughs> if you have any thoughts on this, which is, I mean, first of all, I love the idea that you were not really interested in going to the Christmas party <laughs> and that that put you in the position to be the like antisocial hermit that was at the station in yeah. this moment. That is weird. I mean, I think that part of the, um, the way Richard Neer presents that is, uh, Oh, you know, Vinny was the crank who didn't want to go to the party. It wasn't that. It was that I always preferred to be on the air when, um, like it was when when it was a, a holiday. You know, if yeah. it, I always liked working on Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter Sunday when I was doing the Sunday shows. I always would rather have been working than doing anything else. It wasn't so much that I was anti-party or anti-concert or anything it's just that this was my gig and and i you know luckily i was the one who was there because if well, it, if it hadn't been me it would have been um you know a, a part-timer a fill-in person who would yeah. have maybe not been able to handle it as well as i handled it right but you're right. My 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 uh, my kind of um, uh, crankiness and and uh, you know I'm not going. I'm going to stay and be on the air. That's it. Did make it so that I was the one who was there. So maybe there was a reason for that. Well, and what I what I want to say that you you don't have to respond to if you don't want to is that I think there is something really telling about the way in which you were that day and 
at other moments called on to, you know, as we say in new age circles, hold space (laughs) for people. And that that's um, a pretty remarkable thing and a pretty rare thing to be able to do as a public figure in that way. And, And I mean, you already have this phenomenon of radio, which was so personal. You know, people were listening in their homes, especially late at night. So many people tell me, especially if they grew up listening to you, you know, they would have the radio next to their bed and be secretly listening when they should have been asleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. That there is this intimacy um, between you and the listener that makes it such a beautiful medium for being able to then say, I'm having an emotional response to what just happened. I know you are too. Like creating from just even what you guys were, be- were able to create in that room for yourselves to create that for everybody who was listening of this, like we're going through this together. And I do think that you have always had a really unique ability to do that. I think it's because you're someone who's very honest about your own emotions and not afraid of your own emotions and Mm. not afraid of being honest about them. Um, And I think that's actually a pretty rare thing, especially for someone who is talking to a whole bunch of strangers, (laughs) you know? Well, thank you for saying that. That's, that's fair. I'm very touched by the fact that you say that and that you, uh, you feel that. Um, I think because of the time that I came into radio, because the time was so volatile and there was always something out of the ordinary going on that I just came to accept the fact that there were responsibilities that I had that were outside the the norm of just playing records on the radio. You know, I had I had um, been the person on the air the night that that uh, Robert Kennedy was killed. Uh, when back on uh, on on FMU, um, there had been any number of incidents throughout the '70s when I happened to be on the air when the news broke about something or somebody. Um, when Phil Oakes died, when he committed suicide, I was on the air. It was a Saturday late morning when that news came across the wire. So I was the one who delivered it. So I, I, um, I didn't shy away from it. It was hard to do with Lennon, certainly, but I didn't shy away from it. And in retrospect, like I say, I'm glad that it was me. Yeah. Not for well, the, I, not for the, uh, the, the, the renown, um, but for the fact that I know I, I handled it well because people still tell me to this day that they listened that night and, and I and the others got them through. Yeah. Well, I remember thinking when Sandy Hook happened, whenever that was, I, and you were still on. FUV. You hadn't retired yet. Yeah, I was on FUV. And I, I, I listened to your show that night. Really? And I remembered 
yeah, and I remembered listening and thinking, you know, it was what you were doing that night was very emotional. It was, you didn't, you weren't talking that much. It was mostly just the music you were trying to play. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I had a real revelation about the way in which people expected that from you, but expected it also because it was what you were able to provide that, that creating a space to mourn, to process and to um, kind of safely be able to experience grief and especially emotional, but that's a really beautiful way to make that happen. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's, very spiritual. Mm. I mean, I don't, it's not religious, but mm-hmm. I, I'm always really interested in the fact that, I mean, you're a Sagittarius, so you're interested in these things, but you, your life as a very religious teenager and your interest in spirituality and in that, that was never something you shied away from. And I always think about, even now when people say, like, can't, you know, the world is is a disaster. We need Vin. Like, we need to hear from Vin. We need Vin to, can he come back just mm-hmm. for one show? Or can he make a playlist for us? And I, I realize that what they're asking for is for someone to hold that space for them. And that's... A, a very spiritual thing to be able to do for yourself and for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm very touched that you, um, that you analyze it that way, that you feel that way. I think that, it, that, that that's hard to, um, it, it's hard to keep being that. And I look at oh sure it's exhausting yeah and and it's one of the reasons why I stopped and it's interesting that in that same year that I stopped doing radio, guys of a similar age who had been around as long as I had I'm speaking of David Letterman, John Stewart, those guys all left that same year as well, and I think people still to this day miss they miss not having John Stewart on every night <laughs> you know putting yeah. putting things into um, some kind of perspective Letterman yep. is back now with a thing on on uh, on Netflix but uh I think it's hard to do that it's hard to be constantly in that position and well, you're uh, taking on a kind of collective energy and you're taking a responsibility for it that I think must feel like a lot of pressure. Mm. Yep. Yep. True. And, 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 uh, after a while, it just becomes difficult to come up with, with what I feel has to be something new each time. You know, right. it's, uh, you know, I've, I've run out of steam. 
<laughs> and I've run out of steam for this podcast too. I think. Um, well, I want to ask you one more question. Okay. Did you, sure. Do you remember talking to mom that night? Was she listening to the radio, or the, was it too the, late? Do you John, think she was asleep? The, the John Lennon night. Wow. Um, I don't remember. Once again, you were a baby. So she was probably on your schedule. Yeah. I remember often in the middle of the night. I don't remember. I'll, I'll have to yeah. ask her. Okay. Um, I would guess that I probably called her at some point. I would think that that would be my, that would be my instinct, would be to touch base with, with, uh, with my wife. But there was a lot going on, you know, so... Right. I I'm I must have called her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for talking about all this. I know it's a lot. Yeah, no, and you know what? We should continue. There's a whole other section of Richard Neer's book. Yeah. Where he um what does he call me? A schizophrenic, a paranoid schizophrenic or something? He misuses <laughs> some some <laughs> he misuses a, a psychological term. But I scared Richard sometimes. I was, uh, I did irrational things around him. When, when, <laughs> intentionally? Yeah, 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 to freak him out. When he was, when he got made, he was the program director in the last, like, couple of years that I was there. Yeah. Um, Scott finally stepped down as program director, and... Richard went through a period where he was coming in and sort of cleaning out some of the records in the library. And the music library was in the studio. And Richard, on, on the weekends, he did a, a, a late afternoon show. And I did like a, a mid-afternoon show on either a Saturday or a Sunday. I forget at, at, at this point in time. It was 81 or 82. And uh, he would come in early to do this work that he would do in the library. And it wasn't like he was getting rid of all the records or anything. He was basically just cleaning it up and getting rid of some of the dead weight to make room for for new things. And I would crank the volume up to an excruciatingly painful nine and a half out of out of ten in the studio, you know, and just stand there and watch him with my arms folded. And, it, you know, and, and he wouldn't say anything and I wouldn't say anything, but, you know, it was pain. It was painful. And I did it to to cause pain and discomfort. Because you objected to him weeding out yeah. the record? Yeah. Even though I know that, you know, in, intelligently, I know that he, what he was doing wasn't that terrible. I mean, I've been through record purges where literally everything disappears Richard wasn't doing that, but I think it's one of the reasons why Richard presents me in a certain way in the book. I, I find it amusing. <laughs> you know, there was basically a, a, a love and respect between, not love, but respect, professional okay. respect was there. But but maybe we could get into that next time. Sure. You know that that other part of that book. Okay. Okay. Great. So uh, this has been episode 20 of the, yep. the Vin and Kate Skelsa podcast. Yep. 
We thank you for listening. Yep. See you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye.